Well, next Sunday is Easter Sunday, and you know, a lot of your friends and neighbors are going to be looking for a church to attend and to add a spiritual element to their Easter celebrations. And I want you to invite each and every one of them to worship at Anderson Hills. And there are two ways that we've made it easy for you to do just that. First of all, if you're the techie social media type, you can share our church's invitation via any one of your social media uh, platforms and invite people to come and join you. Um, you can also do it the old-fashioned way by handing someone one of our Easter invitational cards. On the back is all of our worship information for this coming Holy Week, as well as all of our services for next Easter. There are plenty of these on the round table in the narthex. Take as many as you want on your way out of worship today and pass them out to all of your friends and neighbors. Well, there are a couple of other things that you can do to make next Easter Sunday especially welcoming for our guests. First of all, wear your name tag. Introduce yourself to people you don't know. We'll have a lot of guests on our campus, and if you don't recognize someone's face, introduce yourself by name and ask them who they are, and let them know that you're glad they are here. We're going to have lots of greeters all around the building next Sunday, outside and inside. But if you happen to notice somebody wandering around, looking a little bit confused, like they don't know where they need to go, ask them if you can help them find what they're looking for. And because we will have so many guests on our campus next week, it might just happen that when you walk in this space, someone else will already be sitting in your pew. And that's a great thing. So be kind, be gracious. Our ushers are going to be helping everyone find a seat um, in this space. Also, uh, at this hour, as you know, at 11 o'clock, we have worship here and on the other side of the building. So our parking lot tends to fill up very fast. If at all possible, if you've got um, uh, no issues with mobility, consider parking next door in our parking garage to free up as many close-by spaces in our parking lot for our guests as possible. Well, this morning, we are finishing up our Lenten series on the book of Jonah. And surprisingly, we're going to do that by focusing on a passage from the 12th chapter of Matthew's gospel and not from the book of Jonah itself. At this point in Matthew, the religious leaders are finding fault with everything that Jesus does. They are focused on the letter of the law and they're using it to hurt people. They cannot see that the intent of the law is to help people. For example, Jesus' disciples pick a little grain to eat on the Sabbath, and they get accused of working, harvesting on the holy day. Jesus heals a man's withered hand on the Sabbath, and this makes the Pharisees angry. He heals a demon-possessed man and gets accused of working for Satan. Well, at this point, there's not any use anymore in even trying to reason with the Pharisees. They're not listening to Jesus anyway. And in Matthew chapter 12, verse 14, we're told that the Pharisees were so angry that they went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. So they approach Jesus and they ask him for proof that he is the Messiah 
as if they had not been witnessing sign after sign after sign. Today's lesson begins in verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so for three days and three nights the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth. The people of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the proclamation of Jonah. And see, something greater than Jonah is here. Now, you might think it's peculiar that Jesus made a reference to one of the minor prophets, Jonah, and told the Pharisees the only sign he was going to give was the sign of Jonah. Just like Jonah spent three days and nights in the belly of a great fish, so Jesus will spend three days and nights in the heart of the earth after his crucifixion. The resurrection of Jesus is the sign that he is going to give. Now, many of the early Christians wrote about the link that Jesus made between his death and resurrection and the event that happened to Jonah. Great early Christian leaders like Clement of Alexandria, Irenaeus, the bishop of Lyon, and Tertullian all wrote about this link that Jesus made. And many depictions of Jonah can be found in the art that is painted on the walls of the catacombs under the city of Rome where so many of the early Christians were buried. Biblical commentators have pointed out that there are so many parables between Jonah's experience in his storm on the way to Tarshish and Jesus' experience in the storm on the Sea of Galilee. Remember, both Jesus and Jonah were out on the water in boats. Both of them encounter a ferocious storm that rises up seemingly out of nowhere. Surprisingly, both of them are fast asleep as this storm rages around them. And in both stories, it's the people on the boat who come to wake up the one who is sleeping, and they frantically implore, do something. <laughs> and in both cases, there's a miraculous intervention by God, and the sea is calmed. And it's both the sailors in Jonah's story and the disciples in Jesus' story are described as being more terrified or awestruck after the storm than they were during the storm itself. Now, as we've studied Jonah, we've learned that God called him to go to Nineveh and preach to them. But he didn't at first. Instead, he ran as far away as he could in the other direction. For you see, Jonah didn't trust God enough to believe that God had his best interests at heart. He didn't trust that all of God's intentions for Jonah were the best intentions. And sin is like that. 
Sin is rooted in the refusal to believe that God is more dedicated to our good than we are. I mean, we assume that God is not truly for us and that if we give him absolute control of our life, that he will ruin our lives, that we will be miserable. I remember when I was wrestling with my call to ministry 20 years or so ago, and even while I was in seminary for the first couple of years, one of the parts of the call that made me the most frightened was not knowing where I might eventually be called to serve. I remember I had a friend who said that she had a dream that God was calling me to serve on the mission field in Russia. And I thought to myself, some kind of friend you are. <laughs> and being a city boy like I am, I was always fearful of being sent to a small rural church somewhere where I really wouldn't know how to fit in. And in retrospect, both of these were instances of my not trusting God to work things out for the best for me and for my family. But you know what? Trusting God, not trusting God, is as old as Adam and Eve. I mean, they didn't just walk around the Garden of Eden one day and say to each other, hey, let's do something really evil. Let's ruin our lives and ruin the lives of everyone else in humankind who will ever come after us. That wasn't what they were doing. I think they just wanted to be happy. And that sly and crafty serpent was able to convince them that God was withholding something good from them that would make them happy. I mean, that fruit on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil looked good and it looked tasty. And having knowledge is a good thing, right? And so Adam and Eve disobeyed God. They took control for themselves and they trusted themselves instead of trusting in God. Jonah's story is our story. We are selfish, and we think we know what's best for us, and so we trust ourselves more than we trust God sometimes. Now contrast the story of Jonah with a story that is found in the book of Genesis, chapter 22. It's an amazing story of trust and obedience. In that story, you might remember God says to his servant, Abraham, take your son, your only son, whom you love and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on a mountain, I will show you. That's the hardest thing I think you can even imagine being asked to do. And it doesn't make any sense at all. God gives Abraham no reason for this task. God has never asked for a human sacrifice before. In fact, God has laws against human sacrifice. And if Abraham carries out this task as asked of him by God, then God's promise to make his descendants more numerous than the sand on the sea or the stars in the sky will not be able to be fulfilled. But what did Abraham do? He went up the mountain. 
Now today we know what God was doing as he asked Abraham to do that. But Abraham didn't know as it was unfolding before him, living in the moment. But nevertheless, unlike Jonah, Abraham made the decision to trust God. And when his son Isaac asks where the lamb for the burnt offering would be found, Abraham replied, God himself will provide the lamb. And so he built an altar, he bound his son, laid him on that altar, and took out the knife to slay his son. And God did provide a lamb. This mission that God called Jonah to could have meant suffering and death for Jonah. The Ninevites might have responded violently to his preaching. They might have thrown him in jail. They might have killed him. And so Jonah refused to go, thinking only of himself. Now contrast that with Jesus. Jesus knew the mission God was sending him on, and he knew that it meant certain death and suffering. He even talked about it with his disciples. Mark, the Gospel of Mark, records it this way. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. Think about that. Jesus did that for you. And so why would you ever not think that you could put your trust in him? For he is good. And if he did all of that for you, he did it surely because he loves you. And he must be willing to do anything to give you what you need and to give you joy in your life. This is what the New Testament calls love. And the Greek word used for this kind of love is agape. And the Bible writers infused this word with a new meaning of self-giving, of self-sacrifice for others. In the book of 1 John chapter 3, he writes, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. John says, if you want to know the standard for real love, it's this. Jesus dying for us, sacrificing his life for us. John goes on to challenge us to live our lives in the same way in the service of others. He makes love a verb. Love is something we do. It's action. And Jesus teaches that love is absolutely the fundamental ethical principle 
that guides us in the Christian life. John affirms again and again in his short letter that real godly love is the test for authentic discipleship. Love is so much a part of John's theology theology that he is called the apostle of love. And for John, love is not just us mouthing the words, I love you, although that's very important and we need to hear those words, but it's more than that. It's something we do. It's something that we act upon. It is manifested in our deeds and in truth. It's how we live our life. Now, we know that as Christ followers, we are to be loving people. In fact, Jesus said that the mark or the sign of our discipleship is whether we love one another or not. The Apostle Paul told the Roman church that we should not owe a thing except the debt of love. And when he wrote to the church in Galatia, He said that the fruit of the Spirit, the evidence that God is working in your life, is first and foremost love. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul says that you can speak in the tongues of men and angels. You can have prophetic powers, supernatural knowledge. You can have incredible faith, sell all your possessions, even die a martyr's death. But if you don't have love, it means nothing. We don't see this kind of love much. And so when we do, it really gets our attention. I've heard stories, and you probably have too, of prisoners in the concentration camps in World War II who gave their own meager provisions to other prisoners in order to save another prisoner's life. And why do stories like that make such a big impact on us? Why do those stories of sacrifice move us so much? Because we know that anybody who has ever done anything that really made a difference in our lives, they made a sacrifice. They stepped up to the plate. They gave something or they paid something or they bore something on our behalf so we wouldn't have to. And that brings us to the cross. What happened there on that first Good Friday? When we talk about Jesus' sacrifice for us, what does that really mean? Well, over the centuries of church history, there have been many theories on what that sacrifice or what the theory of atonement means. And there are five ways that we have of talking about what happened. One of those is called the moral influence theory. This is one of the earliest theories developed by the earliest Christians, and it teaches that Jesus came and died in order to bring about a positive change for humanity. This moral change comes through the teachings of Jesus alongside of his examples and his actions. And within this theory, the death of Christ is understood as a catalyst to reform society, to inspire us to follow his example, and to live good moral lives of our own. 
When we see the cross, we see the greatness of God's love. And so we no longer want to live in sin and selfishness. It moves us to repentance. Another way the early church looked at what happened on the cross was that God offered his son as a ransom for us to the devil. Jesus' death acts as a payment to satisfy the debt on the souls of the human race, the debt that we inherited from Adam's original sin. And when Satan got Christ down to hell, he found, though, that he couldn't hold on to him. On the third day, Christ rose triumphant from the grave, and he left Satan without either his original prisoners or the ransom that he had accepted in their stead. If you read C.S. Lewis's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you see this theory portrayed as Aslan offers himself on the stone table to the white witch. A third way of looking at the atonement is called the Christus Victor theory. And in this theory, Christ dies in order to defeat the powers of sin, death, and the devil, in order to free us from their bondage. The devil and all the hosts of evil are defeated. Sin is conquered. Obedience has won over disobedience. Love has won out over hate. Life wins out over death. A fourth theory is called the satisfaction theory. Jesus' death is understood as a death to satisfy the justice of God. And here, satisfaction means restitution the mending of what was broken, the paying back of a debt. Sin is an injustice that has to be balanced. Jesus died to pay back the injustice of human sin and to satisfy the justice of God. And unlike in the ransom theory, it is in here we owe a debt to God, not the devil. And the fifth way of looking at the atonement is called the substitutionary theory. And it teaches that Christ on the cross took our place. That Christ bore the curse that we sinners should have borne. That he suffered for us. That he died the death that we should have died. Jesus died to satisfy God's wrath against human sin. That Jesus is punished in the place of sinners in order to satisfy the justice of God and the legal demand of God to punish sin. In a sense, this theory is a legal balancing of the ledgers. Jesus died for legal satisfaction. All of these are ways to help us understand what happened on the cross that Good Friday but ultimately what happened on that cross is a mystery. But here is the important thing that I want us to know and hear today. Jonah's biggest question for God was this. How can God be both just and compassionate? How can God show mercy to an evil empire like the Ninevites when what they really deserved is to be wiped off the face of the earth? Well, here is how. On the cross, the justice of God exacted full punishment for our sin. And in that same 
moment. It provided free salvation to all who would believe. That on the cross, both justice and the love of God fully cooperate together. Paul writes in Romans 3, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. Of course, Jonah didn't know this, though I suspect he does now. And we know it, don't we? Christ died for us, and the cross is the proof that we are loved by God, and that we matter to God. And because of his willingness to be a substitute for us, we can have life and life eternal. American novelist from the last century, Joseph Mitchell, writes about a conversation that he had with his dying sister in North Carolina. And as he sat by her bedside, she turned to her brother and she asked him, Buddy, what does Jesus' death on the cross a long time ago have to do with my sins now, today? And Mitchell struggled to find the right words. But finally he said, with his characteristic stammer, somehow Jesus was our representative. Jesus is our representative. And so we can trust God with our lives because this is a God who knows what our storms are like because he came into the world and lived his own storm. Just like us, Jesus has experienced pain and suffering and death. And if you turn to God, through faith in Christ, he will never let you sink in your storm. Because the only storm that can ever totally destroy your soul will never, ever come upon you. Jesus bowed his head in that ultimate storm willingly for you. He died receiving the punishment for sin you deserve so you can be pardoned when you trust him. And when you see him doing that for you, it may not answer all the questions you have about your suffering, but it proves that despite it all, he still loves you. He can still be trusted. He always has your best interest in mind and you can joyfully surrender your life to him. Will you pray with me? Holy God, King of our lives, we thank you for Jesus who died in our place who was crucified when it should have been us in order to satisfy a debt and pay for our sins, a debt so great that we could never, ever pay it ourselves. But you love us so much, you paid it for us. 
Lord, we invite you to travel with us through these upcoming holy days as we see Jesus teaching in the temple, as we see him gather with the disciples in an upper room, as we, like they did, sometimes betray him, as we, like they did, sometimes look on and shout crucify him. Lord, help us gather at the foot of the cross fully knowing the end of the story, that death could not contain him, that he broke the bonds of death, not only for himself, but for all who believe. And so, help us to stand victorious with Jesus next Sunday as we gather at the tomb to shout, Hallelujah, Christ is risen. Lord, may these days be filled with poignancy and passion and help us understand, as we've never understood before, how great, how high, how wide, how deep is your great love for us. In Jesus' name, amen.